Well, I want to add my welcome to those who have come before. Uh, great to see you here today, together on the first day of spring. Are you feeling warmer and more uh, flourishing already? Uh, we've had enough rain for a while, right? Now uh, maybe we'll get a little sunshine and uh, help us to sprout up like we should, right? Well, it's good to see the change of the seasons. Our Lord is a kind Lord to show us such variety and love in every season. And uh, so looking forward to this one again. Well, uh, the title of my message today is We Preach Christ Crucified. We Preach Christ Crucified. Just as a uh, brief recap before we get into the text, um, the Apostle Paul, as we mentioned last week, was preparing to answer some questions that had been sent to him by this young church in Corinth, which he had originally founded. But he doesn't get to the questions, or to the answers, rather, to their questions until the beginning of chapter 7. And the reason we found out that he waits so long is because there are problems in Corinth. There were many divisions that had been reported to him by Chloe's people. Chapter 1, verse um, uh, chapter 1 here talks about Chloe's people down in verse 11. And, and the cause of this division primarily was not so much quarreling and fighting between individual Christians, but quarreling over their leaders who they follow. They had become partisan. Uh, verse 12, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. I follow Christ. We talked about that last week. And this early part of 1 Corinthians is really a defense of Paul's own Christian ministry. The very fact that there was a, a party or a group of people that were called, I follow Paul, uh, shows that a lot of other people didn't think that and followed other people. And since Paul was their father in Christ, as he talks to them and reminds them of over in chapter 4, uh, verse 15, since he had founded this church, it seemed strange that there would be so many people in Corinth who would be against him, right? They criticized him, Paul. They felt that he wasn't quite as good compared to some of the later leaders that they'd come to enjoy, like Apollos and others, who were very eloquent. So I want to give you a little bit of background. I didn't share last week, and I want to share it this week as we kind of move forward. A little bit of background just to help you understand this world in which they lived and so th these words that we're going to uh, talk about today. And just two things I want to say um, as far as the background goes. First, the, the Corinthian Christians were very proud of their spiritual wisdom, their spiritual illumination, their special knowledge. To use a technical word for this, you have to, word, you have to use the Greek word gnosis. It's kind of like gnocchi, if you like Italian pasta, uh, because uh, it's spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, uh, which is the word for knowledge in the Greek language. And from that word gnosis comes this concept called Gnosticism. And if you've been a student of God's word for any length of time, you've probably run into that idea, especially in the New Testament, in the letters of Paul. This was something he faced on a regular basis as he went from town to town, um, in the, especially in the first and second centuries. And 
the truth is, it's it's always been around us. This this idea of Gnosticism ever since. It's basically the idea that a, a person claims to have a knowledge of God that they don't get by studying the Bible. They claim to have a knowledge of God they don't get from studying the Bible. It's it's not gained from the teaching from the pulpit. It's not gained by using their mind as they look at the Scripture. It's gained from what they would call an, an inner illumination in their heart. Now, of course, I do believe in the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that. But Gnosticism is a, it's a, it's a fake claim. It's a pseudo-claim. And, and what, what, the, what Gnosticism says is, God has illuminated me specially, so I don't need to listen to you. But you need to listen to me. That's the attitude that these kind of folks have, have come across with. And when you might suggest to them that perhaps they're wrong, then uh, they would tell you that, um, that, they, that it's because they have insight and you don't. And so God is telling them, he's giving them special knowledge. And if you meet someone like this in the world today, a Christian Gnostic, uh, it's very difficult because you can't really appeal to them about what they say. Um, They are by definition superior in their knowledge to other people. And the the Corinthians struggled with this. And, And this is despite the fact that even though they thought of themselves very special, they were astonishingly immature when it came to their use of Bible knowledge. For example, over in chapter 6 of this letter, remember the little question, you don't have to turn there right now, but Paul uses it about 10 times. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Here's this church that claims to have this this special knowledge, you know, um, and, 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 and yet Paul has to say to them, you don't even know how to apply your faith to the many issues that are out there today. So the first thing to know about the Corinthians by way of background uh, and why Paul is talking to them the way he is, is because they are very proud of their spiritual illumination, their, their knowledge that lifted them up above the rest of the common herd, you know? The second thing, um, as far as context goes, that's helpful to know is that the Corinthian Christians were hugely influenced by the world around them. Uh, mainly, well, in, in lots of different ways. And, and, I, and I'm not saying anything unusual by that or derogatory by that because the truth is all of us are in many ways influenced by our society. But uh, just to give you one example of how the Corinthians uh, battled this, uh, the, uh, the, the immorality that Paul deals with um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, um, was something that uh, it was just taken for granted in the church at Corinth. And, and when I say it was taken for granted, it wasn't just a part of paganism, it was a part of, of pagan religion. And so here you have the city of Corinth where there is a temple where there are male and female prostitutes that hang out at this temple all day long to serve 
the people who come there. And then at nighttime, they descend from the temple hill down into the town at dark. And if you were brought up in this kind of a culture, you would assume that religious ecstasy, which is what they called it, and regular sexual ecstasy were connected because in their world, it was. So it's no surprise when we get to chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul has to rebuke them for the fact that there is immorality among them. And Paul says it's of an astonishing kind, a shocking kind. And we won't get into that today. We'll, we'll get it in the future. But you, it just means that you can see here the Corinthian church, even though they are claiming to be filled with special knowledge from God, they're actually very influenced by the paganism all around them. And that happens to us too, doesn't it, sometimes? Um, I don't know if you've been keeping track of the news. There's a lot of news these days. But uh, part of what's been in the news the last couple of days has been covering the Hillsong leader in Australia. His name is Brian Houston. And his seeming fall from grace, sharing a motel room with a woman who's not his wife, sending inappropriate text messages to a, uh, a secretary at his church. And then the article goes on to, to talk about how other Hillsong leaders in the United States, a, a very prominent one named Carl Lentz uh, in New York City, and, and others went through similar falls in recent years. And, and, and of course, we might look at a, a group, an organization like Hillsong, and we might say, well, you know, they're charismatics. You know, they claim to have special knowledge from God. And, you know, like some of these Corinthians do. And, and, they're, and they're being influenced by their immoral culture all around them. And, and you know, we're, we're glad we're not like them. You know? Uh, we have to be careful, don't we? Not to be proud, brothers and sisters. We're just as susceptible to the influence of pride and immoral culture all around us. And we know of many leaders in churches like ours, who have also fallen in these areas. We have to be careful, we have to be accountable, we have to be humble. So you see how ironic this is. Here is this church that is fundamentally worldly in their thinking. But they made these great claims of spiritual illumination. They claimed God was speaking to them, that God was giving them his wisdom, but their behavior reflected the thinking of the world around them. And so there's a great irony here. You can't have a, anything more ironical than, than, than people claiming to, to be people who think like God thinks when everybody can actually see that you think the way the world thinks. And that's the situation in Corinth into which Paul is writing. And we'll see a lot more of that in the weeks to come and the months to come as we work through the letter. But in this little passage this morning, verses 18 through 25, Paul is going to go right after the subject of worldly wisdom. And, and again, these were his dear brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves them very much, and that's why he speaks to them very plainly. I think this is the most remarkable example of love as you read these difficult words that Paul shares with them because that's what we're supposed to do in the body, right? 
we speak the truth to each other in love. And we don't cover things up and we don't let things go and let things slide. He has much to say to them about the world's wisdom and why he chooses instead to preach Christ crucified. And so I want to give you three reasons today, if you're taking notes, why um, Christ or why Paul preached Christ crucified. So the first reason is this, because worldly wisdom is incapable of finding God. Worldly wisdom is incapable of finding God. We see this in verses 18 through 21. Let me read those again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. See that? The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, Paul begins this section with a dramatic contrast between wisdom and power between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You know, it's easy to see, if you put yourself in the, in the role of a, of a Jew or a Gentile, uh, particularly a Gentile in Paul's day, it's easy to see why a crucified Messiah or a crucified God would be foolish. I mean, just stop and think about it. How can one be so powerful if one suffers the ultimate penalty from Rome? How can you be powerful? These people were looking for a Messiah who would come, who would triumph over his enemies, not be executed by them. The preaching of the cross? Foolishness. Foolishness. Yet we were told last week in verse 17, this is the priority of Paul's ministry. This is what he's all about, the word of the cross. And he backs it up in verse 19 by quoting part of Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. And in fact, go ahead and hold your place here and just flip back to Isaiah chapter 29 for a moment. Um, this whole section that we're in today, from 18 to 25, uh, has several echoes from the book of Isaiah, uh, showing us the fulfillment of these prophecies in Paul's day and ours. You know, um, I, I mentioned in a Bible study recently that uh, someone had asked me a question not long ago about a specific Bible verse, and if it applied to a, a modern event, something that was happening right now. And my answer to them was, I don't know. Uh, first of all, I'm not a prophet. I don't have any kind of special revelation from God that this equals this. So we have to be very careful about coming out and saying, this equals this. Thus says Brian, not the Lord, right? But when the scripture says, 
because it is written, it's showing you very clearly the fulfillment of something that was prophesied. And we can take that to the bank all day long, right? And it's also a good practice whenever you read the Bible and you come across some kind of a quotation from the Old Testament, it's good to go back and read that passage too because you'll oftentimes find that what's in that passage is in Paul's mind as he's writing what he's writing, and it'll come out in a number of different ways if you're, if you're keen to it, if you've got your eyes open to it. So um, in the verse just before the one he quotes in Isaiah 29, and look at verse 13, Isaiah writes this, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Now that fits right in, doesn't it, with what Paul's talking about, really, from chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians. In, in the first part of the verse, the next verse, in verse 14, um, that Paul quotes, he quotes the last part of verse 14, but in the first part of the verse, of, the, of, of 14, Isaiah writes about the judgment of the wise, that's what he talks about in the last part of the verse, but in the first part of the verse, he talks about that that's going to happen when God will do wonder upon wonder. Do you see that? Wonder upon wonder. And that word wonder is actually used three times in that verse. That, that root word of wonder is used three times in that verse. And it's probably a link directly to Jesus, the one in Isaiah 9, 6, that Isaiah had said would be the wonderful counselor. And that wonderful wonder, a wonder of a counselor, that title, that name for Jesus is a significant one, and it's one that comes up throughout the Old Testament. And another reason why I think it applies here is because if you look at the very end of the previous chapter, in chapter 28, in verse 29, just before he gets into chapter 29, what do you see there? He's talking about the wonderful counselor, isn't he? So, so one, one author kind of sums this, this, uh, this connection up like this. God has already put the wise to shame through the foolishness of the cross. The apocalyptic event, the wondrous event, the shock and awe event that has shattered the old order of human wisdom. What is it that brings human wisdom to destruction, to nothing, to folly, to emptiness? Well, it is this wonder of wonders that God does through the wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus, which is all about the word of the cross that Paul is referencing in, in 1 Corinthians 1. So all these things go together. Uh, verse 20, back in our text, um, raises three questions that also have an interesting connection back to Isaiah. If you're still in Isaiah, you could flip over to Isaiah 33, 18 and, and take a look there. But verse 20 here in 1 Corinthians 1 raises three questions. You see that? All three of the questions start with the word what? Where? That's right, not what, where. I, I was getting into a little Abba Costello there for a second. What, where, who, we won't go down that road. Um, 
All three of the questions start with the word where. If you're looking at Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 18, there are three questions in that verse. All three of those questions start with the word what? I did it again. (laughs) They don't start with the word what? They start with the word where. Yes, thank you. This is the only time in the entire Bible where there are three questions. All of them start with where. That's not a coincidence. Paul is thinking about the writings of Isaiah as he's writing his letter to the Corinthians. Now, what, is, what does this mean? What is the connection? Well, the answer to these questions is all the same, whether you're in Isaiah or whether you're in 1 Corinthians 1. The answer to these questions, because they're rhetorical questions, the answer is nowhere. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Nowhere. They're not, they're not to be found. In Paul's list, the three people he lists are experts in their field of learning. The temptation then to, again, be proud, look down on others, would be very easy to understand, wouldn't it? The scribes, the teachers of the law, ooh, boy, did they know the law. They knew the law. They knew the law better than you know the law. And they'll be glad to let you know that whenever you want. So we have to be careful about the temptation there. But Paul is saying these people, they're at the top of their game intellectually. These debaters, these scribes, these are, these are people who are right on it. Um, the, uh, what was the, th- the other one? The, the, the one who is wise the one who is the scribe, the one who is the debater of this age. These guys are at the top of their game, and they have intellectually missed everything. They know it all, and yet they know nothing that really matters. Paul is saying they have missed out on the truth. As verse 21 states, they have not found God, in all of their intellect, in all of their worldly wisdom, they have not found God. And that is how they have been made as fools, which the last part of verse 20 suggests. In fact, Paul says this is the wisdom of God for this to happen. Now, how is it wise, think about this with me, how is it wise to not allow human wisdom to find him? To know him. There's a lot of people, you could go to some of the the great seminaries in our country today that were founded to, to train preachers of the gospel like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Yep, I'm saying the right schools. All of them founded to train men for ministry. All of them still have seminaries today. All of them have teachers with PhDs that teach and earn lots of money teaching students about the Bible. And almost all of them do not know God. How is that possible? Another writer puts it this way. 
in the cross, God puts Jew and Greek, wise and foolish, trained and untrained on the same level, canceling out all human enlightenment on the subject of salvation or redemption. Do you get that? So that means that anybody who finds God is no wiser than anybody else. There is no advantage to being the smartest person in your, in your game, to be experts in knowledge. You've probably heard it said before, lots of preachers have used the phrase, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Paul wrote strongly about this later in Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 32. He wrote, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. When it comes to spiritual knowledge and the ability to find God, no one has an advantage over someone else. All of us are darkened and blinded by our sinfulness, and we need God's help. We need his rescue. And Paul will go on in verse 21 to tell us that the key issue to knowing God is not wisdom at all. It's a different word. It's faith. It's believing. So Paul, what is Paul saying in these few verses in 18 through 21? He's simply saying that intellectualism and wisdom and worldly wisdom and knowledge cannot tell us who God is and what his purposes are for our lives. It gives no one a special advantage. That would seem fairly obvious to most of us who, are, who have been Christians for any length of time. But it's an important thing for us to say, isn't it? It's an important thing to say, to trumpet from this pulpit, because if God is the source of the universe and the goal of the universe, all things are by him and for him and through him. If he alone knows the secret to what life is all about, then to not know God is the most pitiful state to be in of all, isn't it? But that's the state in which we live as sinners. People know all about the world. Watch them on Jeopardy. Mm. But we know nothing about the God who made it and who's going to judge it and who is at the heart of its meaning. That's the problem in our 21st century world. Paul preaches Christ crucified because worldly wisdom is incapable of knowing God. There's another reason he preaches Christ crucified, number two, and this is found in verse 22. And it's because worldly wisdom demands proof. Worldly wisdom demands proof. So because the world cannot know God, and because it has this desire to solve every problem, to be the smartest cat in the room, the world says... We want to know if there's a God. And if you say there is a God, prove it. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. 
You'll know this from friends that you may have in the world who are agnostics, which, of course, is the natural state of the world. A lot of people, if you polled them out today in the streets of Indianapolis, most people would say they believe there's a God. Most people would also say God is removed. God is apart. God is unconcerned. God is away. I can't know him. The world will demand two things if it's to be persuaded that God exists. The first thing they'll demand, like the Jews, is signs. Now, you remember that the leaders of the nation demanded this of Jesus over in the Gospels. and Mark 8.11 is one of those places. They, they wanted tangible proof and evidence that he is the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, do this. And you'll remember Jesus would not do that. He refused to give them the tangible proof on their terms. Now, he certainly did a whole lot of proving that he was the Son of God. He showed a whole bunch of evidence that he was who he said he was. But he wouldn't do it on their terms. Never did. And the world is still asking for such proof. Something that they can see. Now, the second part of verse 22 says the Greeks, as opposed to the Jews, seek wisdom. Is this a different thing? Not really. The Jews seek proof by tangible evidence, something I can measure scientifically. Uh, do you remember uh, the Russian cosmonaut, the first one up in space, Gar- Gargarin, I think his name was? And he got up into space in his little Sputnik capsule, right? And he, he was the first man ever to do so. He looked around, and he came down with a big smile and said, God is not there. Any of you remember that? Because, you know, Christians always say, where is God? In heaven. In heaven. So he went up there and was proud to report to his Russian atheist that he found no God. But the Greeks, of course, are far more, always were far more sophisticated than just the Jews or the Russians, for that matter. The Greeks said, this kind of thing is childish. What we want is intellectual proof. It's like the, it's like the student that, that says, you answer this question, and then I will believe. For example, why do good people suffer? You answer that question for me, and I'll believe. Things like that. Well, in verse 22, Paul has covered the whole world because either people seek proof tangibly, materially, physically, or they seek proof intellectually. That's what the world demands. But it's also very sad, isn't it, sometimes when God's people sometimes demand the same things from God. Do you remember the Israelites in the wilderness? They went through a pretty rough time, didn't they, after coming through the Red Sea? The Exodus, they, be, they began to demand things of God. Do you remember that? Prove that he cares for them by bringing water out of a rock or by bringing us something better to eat than this miserable manna. And you remember God was very angry with them for putting him to the test, for asking him for proof that he cared for them. And this demand for proof, of course, it's egotistical. It's man-centered. But it's also 
fundamentally skeptical. It's the world wanting to believe without having to believe. The world says, I'll believe if you prove it to me. But of course, when you've proved it, then they don't have to believe. Two plus two. I don't have to prove that that means four. It's self-evident. If I, if I try to prove that God exists by tangible proof, or if I try to prove that God exists through or intelligent genius, then the world can say, I believe. But when the world says, I believe on those terms, it isn't really believing at all, is it? That's not what faith is. The world demands signs, wisdom, if it's to believe in our God. So that's the first thing the world demands. The second thing the world demands, as the Corinthians also sadly did, was spiritual leaders who would satisfy that demand. And so... They wanted leaders who would be able to do one of these two things. Show us something really great when it comes to signs. And we're going to find that all through this letter. Or maybe you can reason it with us. And of course, because there was a demand for this, supply comes along, doesn't it? Just look around. We've had, we've had charlatans in the United States for over 100 years that have claimed to be able to do these kinds of things. The church has always asked or been asked for Christian leaders who are eloquent, geniuses, masters of philosophy, spiritual knowledge. They can prove and overcome any opponent of the Christian faith. If you have a question, they have an answer. Look at, look, at verse, uh, look at chapter 2 and see what Paul says about this, which we'll come to here in a couple weeks. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And my speech and message, uh, down to verse 4, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you see why Paul never really went after satisfying these desires of the Corinthian church? Because both in terms of wisdom and in terms of signs, he was such a disappointment. Let, let me explain what I mean. In regards to great rhetorical skill and eloquent words... Look over, hold your place here. Look over to 2 Corinthians for a moment, chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. Actually, this gives us the answer to the reason why they were disappointed with him in every way. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Here's what they say. Corinthians say this. For they say, his, referring to Paul, his letters are weighty and strong. Well, we know that, don't we? Ever read the book of Romans? His letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Look at that second part first. His speech is of no account. 
Think about this. For some extraordinary reason, in the providence and plan of God, the greatest apostle to the Gentiles that there ever was was not given the gift of oratory, of being a speech master. Isn't that not remarkable? So he would never have been invited to speak in the big conferences in our country today. When you actually heard him speak, he was painfully lacking in the gifts that the society in those days valued highly. But not only was his speech limited in, in some measure unattractive, but look, his bodily presence was weak. Tradition, we don't know for sure, but tradition says, maybe as a result of this verse and verses like this, that Paul was humpbacked. You ever heard that? That he was bow-legged. The Bible doesn't say either of those things, so we won't either. But instead, we'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a moment and verse 7. There's probably not a good reason to doubt the traditions that have come down. He clearly was no Iron Man, no Superman. You would never have thought when you saw him, that's got to be God's apostle. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. According to some modern teaching, that is what is thought to have happened when it says the life of Jesus manifested in his body means that Paul kind of like got supernaturally zapped into Superman. But verse 10 does not mean that. What it means is that the life of Jesus determined that this man, a battered man, a sick man, a nervous man, physically often a wreck, persecuted, perplexed, nevertheless maintained his mission for Christ throughout Asia Minor and planted churches here, there, and everywhere. That's what it means. The life of Jesus was manifested in his mortal flesh in maintaining this earthen vessel, this jar of clay, as a jar of clay in order to do a supernatural work. Paul preached Christ crucified because worldly wisdom thirdly, cannot save. It cannot save. Not only does it demand proof, not only is it incapable of finding God, but thirdly and finally, it cannot save. Look at verses 23 to 25. What is Paul's solution to this whole dilemma? 
All of this stuff that he's dug up here in these verses. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you'll see it here. And I can't tell you how important this is. Where does God do his work in the salvation of men and women? The Corinthians would think God does his work of salvation through their guy, Apollos, Kephas, Paul. So the leader has to be in some respect a superman, a miracle worker, a theological genius, someone with extraordinary knowledge over and above the normal. Now, what I am not saying is I'm not denying the needs for spiritual gifts for the Christian leader. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying he needs to be filled with the Word and with the Spirit. But what I am denying is that the Christian minister is the one that God works through for the planting of his church and the sustaining of his church. God does not do this through men or women. God works to plant his church and to sustain it through what Christ has done. And specifically, what Christ has done on Calvary. This is the meaning of verse 22. The Jews demand signs, and the Greeks want wisdom, seek wisdom. But we will not supply that demand. We preach Christ crucified. If we were to supply that demand, we would, we would have in the power of the Spirit. I mean, Paul could do signs, couldn't he? He could heal. He could speak in tongues. He could do a lot of things. The, power, the Holy Spirit could give power to do those things. But if, if, if that's the way it worked, then the intention of the world would be upon who? The man through which God had done the work. This is not what we do. We preach someone else. We don't preach Apollos. We don't preach Kephas. We don't preach Paul. We preach Christ. We don't preach what he's doing in our hearts as ministers, special things that he's only doing in us, special knowledge that he's only given to us. We preach what he did on the cross because the Christian message and the Christian gospel is all of God. Now that's a revolutionary concept, isn't it? This man is to do his work with a message that has nothing whatsoever to do with himself. Pastor Brian McCrory is to do his work with a message about another person who lived in the past, died in the past, and because of his actions in the past, has made redemption possible. True? True. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 6. Let me give you one last illustration of this, and then we'll close. I warned uh, Kyle and Gil up there. I said, this is going to be a long one today. They said, oh, should we put more time on the clock? I said, no, don't do that. Let me see if I can get through the rest here quickly. 
This, of course, is why Paul was anxious, if you remember from last week's message, not to baptize many people, because if he did that, it would lead to a false doctrine of baptism. The baptism was all about him. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What on earth does that mean? He's saying that as far as Apollos and he are concerned, they want you to learn through their example, not to go beyond what is written in the Scriptures. God's Word is sufficient. That's what we teach. Now, if a church does go beyond God's Word, what happens? You know, if someone is teaching something which is not in the Bible, then who becomes the authority for it? waiting as you think about that answer. It's not real hard, is it? You become the authority. You are the one. And if you're going to be the authority for it, then you have to say that God has given it to you. And so you have to say that God has given you words and given you teaching to speak, which are as authoritative as the Scriptures themselves, which is exactly what is happening today in many places in the United States and around the world by places that call themselves churches. They're preaching things that are beyond the Scriptures and calling it authoritative. These people have gone back to a Gnostic ministry, special knowledge, and one that will certainly lead to being puffed up and all kinds of sin. Paul says, I do not preach myself. I preach Christ crucified. That's why he can say something so extraordinary like he did back in verse 13. Remember? Was Paul crucified for you? That should have gotten their attention, right? But he preaches Christ crucified. Look at the rest of 23. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That is not just a powerful passage. He means that. He lived that. First, the foolishness of God shown in Christ crucified is wiser than men. Why? Because it has given the world the true knowledge of God. Remember I asked before, where do you find the true knowledge of God? Where do you find it? The answer? Only in the Christian church. Understand that? And I'm not talking about the denomination of the Christian church. I'm talking about a church with real Christians in it. It can't be found anywhere else. Why is the knowledge of God known only in the Christian church? Because the Christian church focuses upon Christ crucified. They focus on the gospel. Through that, the world has come to a knowledge of God. And we owe all of that to the fact 
that the apostles like Paul and the others did not move into Gnosticism like much of their world did, but they stayed preaching Christ crucified. A second part of the verse there, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why is the weakness of God stronger than men? Because that cross, that weakness, that inability to overthrow Rome, being executed by Rome, that foolishness, that cross has brought man to God. And no other power, no other person, no other religion has ever been able to do that. No other power can deliver man from his appalling predicament, which is an eternity separated from God in a real hell. Nothing can deliver him but the cross of Jesus Christ and bring him to full salvation. We see that down in verse 30, which uh, Pastor Trey will get to next week. Jesus is our source of life. He is the one that God made our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There's full salvation right there. So what the world could not do, God did, and he did it through Jesus Christ. And the ministry of the church must reflect that. The ministry of the church must not be pointing to itself as though God has made the ministers, and I don't mean just me, the ministers, the ministers, in some way a source of saving knowledge and power. People who can do special signs. People who can give you special knowledge and revelation. The minister and the ministers are saying all the time, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Crucified. That is our message. You must go to him, not to me. I'll ask the praise team to come on back for our final song. And let me try to sum up these thoughts in a simple way. Because in this passage, Paul is really telling us something rather simple underneath of it all. God is going to destroy and God is going to save. That's how he started off back in verse 18 and 19. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the world which can't even find him and which gives them no advantage at all or anyone else in God's plan. And he's going to save. He's going to save those who have been called, verse 24. Those who are called, you see that? And he's going to save those who cry out to him in faith, verse 21. The ones who believe. And these that are called and these that are believing are believing in response to something. And that something is the preaching of the cross. That's what they're responding to. You know, when you listen to campaign speeches every few years from politicians who want to change things, they often appeal to one thing as the solution for all our troubles. Education. 
We've got to teach our young people the right stuff so they can avoid all the problems that we've gotten ourselves into. If people can just get smart enough, they can fix things. Well, I don't know about you, but when I look around the world today, I see a whole lot of really smart people, smarter than me, who just mess things up constantly. And now you know why. Their wisdom can't save us. It can't even save them. It can't even find God. Sometimes even in the church we think, well, if we could just get some flashier programs going or get some more talented speakers up there than these guys, or, or, or something that we think will be smarter to do by the world's standard of things. Then we will be successful. Then we will grow. Then we will make an impact. And all those things may be wonderful to have and do. But God takes us patiently by the hand through the Apostle Paul, looks us in the eye, and says to us, just focus on this one thing. Preach Christ crucified. Well, of course we'll do that. That's the basics. That's baby stuff. That's not really enough, though, is it? That's too simple. Maybe sometimes we might even think it's kind of foolish just to camp out on that story all the time. But it's the right answer, brothers and sisters. It's the only answer. When we depart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, when his death on the cross ceases to be our main focus and message, or any church's main focus and message, we are the ones who end up looking foolish. And friend, if you're here this morning and you reject the message of Christ's cross, thinking that there is a better way to get to heaven, you, my friend, are doomed. Christians, aren't you thankful that Jesus called you away from your own wisdom and put you under the foolishness of the preaching of the cross so that you could be saved? The bottom line is this. We owe everything to the cross. Absolutely everything. And we owe the rest of our lives to the preaching of the cross to others. That's the truth. Our worth is not in what we own, not in our strength or skill, not in our winning or losing. It's found at the cross. And that must be where we drop our anchor and stay. Let's stand together and sing a song about the gospel as we close.